1: This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. Joanna Raven, Associate Professor of History of Medicine and History at Yale University, is a brilliant and engaging scholar. And I had the pleasure of getting to chat with her about her first book, Life on Ice, A History of New Uses for Cold Blood, published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. The book follows the story of cryobiology, the study of life at low temperatures as it was put to use in field research on human subjects across the globe in other words it's a history of blood banking but radin shows how blood-oriented anthropologists and geneticists in the cold war actually operated under, under two different temporalities of salvage in the first geneticists and epidemiologists sought out blood samples to exploit imagined inborn genetic resistance to new diseases a future-oriented approach in the second Anthropologists work to capture a rapidly receding past by collecting blood from so-called primitive societies to create a kind of biological baseline of human development. Raiden also attends to the ethics, inherent in the practice of extracting and circulating blood, and highlights work being done to re-engage indigenous communities beyond mere repatriation of vital materials. Raiden is a fluid thinker, and the tide of her words was stemmed into a freeze by our internet connection, but once in our conversation. So nonetheless, hearing her speak is a real treat, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I began by asking Brayden more about her background. And I have to say that she may be the first person to have told me they were pursuing a PhD in STS in order to start a business.
0: I have to go back um... You know at least to uh, my undergrad when I studied science communication um, and there I had a real interest in um, you know fundamental questions about how people with um, expertise about science um, are able or not able to um, share that with people who have decision-making power so kind of classic issues of, of expertise um, and I went um, out into the real world uh, to work for a while, and um, one of the places where I was working, I was actually doing the work of being a risk communication specialist, um, working for um, a media relations group that represented a number of public health and global health clients, including the CDC's Center for um, STDs, HIV and TB, um, as well as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it was a really fascinating opportunity to see this invisible layer. Were a layer that's invisible to most people in between the production of epidemiological information and the ways in which that gets packaged and disseminated. And it was there, um, spending time kind of pouring over epidemiological data and thinking about population health. I started to get really interested in how the messages that I had gotten about science and, um, in particular, med in particular medicine and, and public health risks didn't seem to follow naturally from the data um, that I was looking at. And so I'd had just a little bit enough of um, a background in science studies to think, well, you know, if I went back um, and I got a degree, um, you know, maybe I could start my own company, um, and do this even better. So that was the plan. And I wound up, um, going to Penn for history and sociology of science, um, where I thought, you know, okay, I'm going to really, um, understand more about how these complex, um, technical systems. I didn't know that term. I learned that in graduate school, um, worked and, um, and that was, and that was the master plan. Um, and, Right when I started graduate school, um, I got really fascinated with um, a project called the Genographic Project, which was um, this early foray into consumer genomics where people were being invited to send, you know, their spit in exchange um, to find out like who they really were and where they came from. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is a kind of citizen science. This is a form of participation um, you know, in science. And I'm gonna learn about this. Uh, and this will be a great case study for thinking about the kinds of, you know, things that I might want to do. Um, But before I knew it, I was, you know, deep into the science of how it was possible to take someone like me and my spit and my DNA um, and compare it to the DNA of people that I was never gonna meet and wouldn't have considered kin um, and that was gonna tell me who I really was. Uh, And it was doing that work and kind of scratching um, at that question that drew blood. And I wound up thinking and discovering that there were, you know, freezers filled with blood samples from indigenous peoples from around the world that were being put to work um, for purposes that the people who had donated those blood samples weren't necessarily interested in the outcome um, and probably had very little awareness of how that was going to be used. Um, And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write my dissertation about um, the history of human biological variation and the history of that kind of effort, I hadn't planned to think about freezing per se, Um, but when I went and started doing early research about how, who these scientists were that had originally collected blood and tried to make these kinds of um, connections... I was surprised and perplexed to find out how fixated they were on this then relatively new technology of freezing. Um, and the more I encountered it, the more I got fascinated with freezing too. Why was it that um, you know people believed that freezing blood was going to enable some sort of snapshot in time? And it made me think back to the time I'd spent at the CDC and the ways in which um, I knew there were massive collections of um, human tissues that were being used for all kinds of public health problems. Um, And thinking about the freezer and this practice of freezing and thawing gave me a completely different way to understand what life was, how we could think about life and time. And before I knew it, the dream of sort of uh, starting my own, you know, company had completely transformed um, <laughs> into really just being seduced by these fundamental questions about the nature of life and its limits and who gets to decide. So that's my my current going narrative about how I got from point A to point B.
1: The book is grounded in an analysis of refrigeration as a form of techno-science, which was a marked departure from the consumer applications that preceded it. I asked Raiden to unpack how she followed this new technology and how it allows her to trace the relationship between temperature and time that ties her narrative together.
0: Great. Um, yeah, so I was lucky enough at, in graduate school to um, study with Ruth Schwartz Cowan, um, who might be known to some of the listeners, well, for many, who will, who will be known to many listeners, but who might Um, be known for a little article she wrote called How the Refrigerator Got Its Hum. Um, And so, um, you know, thinking about refrigeration, when I came across this stuff um, in in the journals, I was primed already to be thinking about the technology that made it possible. Um, And I thought, Oh, refrigeration freezing. I'll just, you know, I know all the stuff that's been written about household refrigeration. I'll just go to the library and I'll get the best book on the history of scientific refrigeration um, and then I'll be done. And it turned out I had to write it because <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't exist. Um, and into that mix of thinking about technology um, I also benefited from getting to study with John Trash, who at that time was finishing his book on the romantic machine and thinking about, you know, how our interactions with our machines, um, are more complicated than what, um, you know, uh, a Heideggerian, um, interpretation would have us believe like, and this seemed like such, um, an amazing opportunity to really think seriously. And and John and I talked a lot about how to do that um, as an opportunity to understand how we might have different understandings of what it means to use technologies in the realm of biomedicine. Um, And what has uh, surprised me um, is that we have some really excellent work on um, the history of technology and um, it hasn't really gotten a hold in the history of medicine in the ways that it's so possible. And so I hoped that um, by foregrounding the technology, not only would I get at different dimensions of the story, but that I would be able to demonstrate how it's not possible really to understand the history of modern medicine without paying attention to technologies and not just medical devices, but infrastructure. Um, and we could get beyond um, just the kind of doctor-patient interaction to start thinking much more broadly about how um, the ways we understand something as intimate as who we are um, could be shaped by a technology seeming. As innocuous and resistant to analysis as a freezer. Um, and I just was really attracted to the challenge of um, figuring technology in that way um, in this story. Um, the other question you had about temperature and time um, that's something that it took me a while to really appreciate just how powerful that relationship was. I mean, the thermodynamics potential was there from the beginning um, in looking at the history of refrigeration and um, going all the way back to the 19th century and thermodynamic theories about entropy and decay and dissipation. Um, and in a story that was all about efforts to overcome decay and resist decay, I got hypersensitized to the ways in which that language was also taking place um, Metaphorically. Um, So, you know, not only was the freezer situated as a way to um, create a kind of uh, form of suspended animation for tissue itself, because I was talking about um, efforts in particular to collect blood from members of indigenous communities, I was able to um, really think differently about certain anthropological theories that had always made me uncomfortable like why did Claude Levy Strauss have this idea of hot and cold societies and that indigenous peoples were supposedly cold, um, not because they had lower temperatures, but because of the way they resisted um, innovation and transformation. And so thinking about um, temperature and time really allowed me to understand a kind of post-war thermal politics um, in the atomic era when temperatures are being augmented radically and people are, really confused about what this means and they're reaching for new kinds of language to make sense of how we, how humans should think about themselves, um, in time. What are the new potentials of life? Um, what does it mean to be human and what is it going to mean? And Um, this is before anyone's talking about the Anthropocene, before anyone's talking about climate change and the ways we talk about it now. Um, But you could see um, in the way that people regarded both um, a small vial of blood as well as um, a potentially disappearing um, indigenous community, um, the anxieties are projected both in the technology and extended into the social world. And that just to my mind seemed like something that I hadn't hadn't encountered before um, in the histories of science, medicine, technology I had encountered, but helped me um, see a little bit further um, into connections about Cold War science and medicine um, and even how we take for granted questions about what it means to be alive.
1: I asked her to elaborate on what is so special about blood versus say DNA, which any molecular biologist knows you can leave out on the bench overnight without it getting spoiled.
0: That's such a great question. Um, and there are so many facets to answer, but the first thing that brings to mind, um, when you ask it, um, is that blood, um, is so protean um, and you go back to um, even the medieval um, era and people like um, Carolyn Bynum um, who has you know this amazing work on um, blood and relics um, and the ways that blood gets endowed with meaning um, and it seems to hold more than is ever going to be uh, detectable um, I think that idea um, very much was in the minds of the scientists who were collecting blood. They were collecting lots of other things, too. They were collecting, um, you know, um, hair samples, and in some cases, stool samples. Um, they were doing fingerprints and all kinds of anthropometric measurements. But one scientist kind of put his finger and he said, you know, blood is the most important specimen we collect. And part of it had to do with the fact that this was um, the early days of molecular biology. So so nobody was really even talking about DNA at all. Um, nobody was saying, oh, we're going to collect this blood and one day we'll be able to um, sequence the DNA that is contained within. Nobody said that. Um, they talked about trying to get the full genetic picture, um, but it wasn't clear how they were going to do that. And what was obvious to them is that molecular biology was all was producing new kinds of blood groups um, studies, um, it was producing new kinds of proteins, um, that could be studied. Um, and so there was this real faith that in time, um, blood would enable scientists to answer questions they hadn't even figured out how to ask. And they knew that there was more in the blood that, that they could detect. They couldn't say what it was, um, but they believed that it was there. And, um, For me, what was really exciting (laughs) was when I pieced together the story about um, Basil Louye, the Catholic priest, who was one of the um, progenitors of cryobiology, the science of freezing life. Because here you have this Catholic priest who gradually comes around to blood as the ideal experimental material for stopping and starting life, and you see that these collections of blood come to be like secular reliquaries that can um, perhaps perform scientific miracles. They're only miracles because, because they exist in the future. Um, And by the time they occur, they won't be miracles anymore. Um, And so there is that actual persistence of something miraculous um, being able to be revealed from blood. And this is what I talk about in terms of latency, Um, latency, both as a kind of suspended animation, um, but also a concealed potential, um, the sort of cryptic dimensions of what can be revealed. Now, that's from a kind of technical level, but there's another really important um way that blood matters for my story which has to do with race Um, and if you look at the history of um race writ large blood is the is the is the fluid, is the language that um, in particular Americans, um, but around the world, but in particular Americans have used to um, adjudicate race. Think about the one drop rule um, of, you know, if you have one drop of, you know, African-American blood, then you're black. Um, Or think about blood quantum as a way of Um, deciding who's in and who's out um, in Native American communities. And so blood had always um, or had long been this racial um, marker, this way of um, determining the essence of who someone really was. So the idea that um, these scientists would focus and be so excited about the ability to preserve this otherwise ephemeral material um, made sense when you put those two facets together, um, that there was some kind of um, racial thinking going on um, about what the utility of blood was, but also um, some kind of thinking about the, 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 concealed potential of even other forms of life, um, that might be within this blood. So DNA, um, to come back around, you're absolutely right. It's totally hardy. It doesn't need to be frozen. It's almost, when you think about freezing DNA, the freezer be becomes like this baroque technology. It's like so excessive, you know, um, you you know, why would you be doing that? But partly what's at stake. Um, and this is becomes a big issue when people talk about, um, well, maybe, you know, we should just sequence all the samples and get rid of the blood. And that would, you know, solve um, some of these ethical issues or questions about ownership and property. The problem there from the perspective of scientists is that what you're getting out of these samples is much more than DNA. DNA is, you know, um, what everyone's really excited about right now but what if there's something else that we don't even know? So there's this constant question of like the future. When does the future arrive? Um, And you wouldn't want to get rid of the sample. And one of the ways I I kind of think about it is when we talk about in library science, like digitizing the books or digitizing, say, the scientific journals. Um, As historians, we're like, no, don't throw the journal away because we want the advertisements. We want the back matter. We want maybe the person who scrawled some notes in the corner. Um, There's so much more information there than just what is presented as the um, valuable content. And I think the same thing is at play with blood. It's such a kind of um, information dense fluid um, that it becomes very difficult for scientists to um, think about reducing it merely to DNA, though DNA is of course incredibly valuable thing to try to get out of blood.
1: Life on Ice can be read as a history of Cold War biology, but it is also a reflection on data and archives. One of my favorite parts of the book is when a statistician criticizes the collect first, hypothesize later mentality of Raiden's actors, and I asked her to talk a bit about how different communities of scientists worked with this data and the downstream epistemic consequences of collection practices.
0: Yeah, that's another um, really awesome question, Um, in particular, because one of the things that's been really exciting about working on this project is the ways it's led me into domains that I didn't know that I was going to be interested in. So um, increasingly, I find myself um, in conversations about big data and the history of data. Um, And so Newton Morton's um, kind of chalk criticism, um, that this is this whole collect now, think later approach is bad and is going to lead to, you know, meaningless, um, outcomes, um, actually presages some of the debates we see coming out with big data where it's much more about hypothesis, um, uh, generation than hypothesis testing. So, you know, big data, um, a way the, one of the ways in which um we're seeing uh knowledge, let's say, get made is by having massive aggregations of data and then um things, patterns emerging from them. Um and what's going on with this blood story that I'm telling, especially um in the way that these collections are being formed in the 50s and 60s, um, is a similar it is really laying the groundwork for that in a way. Um, You know, these many of these scientists don't know exactly what they're looking for but they know that having these large numbers of samples having new technologies that will lab- enable slightly higher throughput of analysis and they don't always do the analyses themselves they outsource it to different labs around the world they're also um, developing computer programs early computer programming to make sense of how to aggregate this knowledge um, and someone like Brooke Blumberg is a really great Example. So um, Barry Blumberg is at the NIH. Um, he starts to get really um, interested in this thing called the Australia antigen that he finds in some blood samples and he travels around the world, starting to collect more and more blood samples. He's described by um, another scientist as a have needle, will travel kind of guy. Um, that, because he's just he knows that he's gonna find something, but he doesn't know what it is. And what he ultimately Um, winds up discerning is the viral etiology of hepatitis B, um, which was really remarkable because he didn't know. It wasn't like he went out to figure out what causes hepatitis B. Um, It revealed itself through these aggregations of samples. And the same thing or similar thing um, happens in in several other instances where um, the scientist doesn't really know what... um, what's being investigated, but having these massive numbers of samples enables a certain kind of searching um, or molecular search um, That can reveal new sorts of insights. So Newton Morton is such an interesting figure um, Not only because he and Jim Neal had worked together on the atomic bomb casualty commission and really didn't get along at all um, But because Morton's views are increasingly marginalized. He makes a lot of good points He has a lot of good insights, but he's also um, not against the salvage impulse He just wants to do it his his way um, and there's a real contestation for authority that Neil is ultimately the better um, scientific diplomat, um, the better um, able to enroll the World Health Organization, um, the International Biological Program and these other agencies to push his uh, approach and his values um, and he's better at enrolling allies and that powerful allies in that project um, as as well, so um, you know this salvage impulse. Um, both, I guess, yeah, presages this big data moment in really important ways, um, but also um, reflects. This is the other side of the question. Really strange anxieties um, about degeneration, um, about the loss of the past, about um, um, what. Um, Claude Levi Strauss would call like the world on the wane. So these are scientists who, um, are, have a kind of proto environmentalist, uh, Awareness, You know, Rachel Carson um, is writing about Silent Spring. Everybody is acutely aware and concerned about um, ionizing radiation. Neil's chief among them, um, you know, he's there in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, tr- studying the survivors of um, the atomic bomb as a kind of natural laboratory. And he starts to realize that, We just don't know um, know, what we're even measuring. We need um, this new kind of baseline. And so the language of baselines winds up becoming ubiquitous as a justification for why we're going to collect all of these things, why we're going to literally take stock um, of biological variation around the world. And so the baseline was another thing where I'm like, wow, this keeps coming up. I should look for the, like the his, the best article on the history of the baseline and maybe it's out there, but I haven't found it yet. Um, and I just think it's such a, fa- it's an engineering term um, and it becomes a kind of hard reset. It's like, okay, the bomb happened. We're in a completely different world. This is the era of like the risks what, you know, er- Ulrich Beck calls the risk society, although he hadn't called it that yet. Um, and People like Barry Commoner are really anxious about this idea that we are conducting inadvertently an experiment on ourselves and the effects won't be able to be revealed um, for years and years. And so if we don't act now to collect evidence of our own contamination, how are we going to even understand where we're at? It was this moment of real, like biological disorientation Um, and that was really fascinating to me because the freezer then takes on this other realm there's this effort to actually construct a freeze frame of this moment when it appears like things are maybe only going to get worse. Um, And we want to know just how bad. Um, And by we, it's these scientists, these cosmopolitan, largely Euro-American scientists that look to indigenous peoples as not pathological, but more normal, um, more um, um, in harmony with um, their environments. And it's that kind of updating of the ideal of the noble savage for the nuclear age um, that makes members of these communities such extra appealing subjects of salvage. And it's the salvage of their blood that will somehow provide salvation, not for those communities, but for the already maladapted, quote unquote, moderns, um, who, who will have to um, persist in a world that they themselves have polluted and made um, toxic. And there's a strange logic there that is at the core of this um, em- emphasis on biological salvage. And it reproduces almost exactly the 19th century values of, um, you know, ethnographic salvage. Um, The sense that, um, you know, in Darwin's time, like the anxiety of um, encroaching modernity leads people to look to the Indigenous other um, as a way of measuring the distance um, of how far modernity's byproducts um, have gone. And that's a really insidious kind of narrative. Um, and to reproduce that narrative right at a moment when the civil rights movement is happening in the United States, there's a red power movement, there's a real opportunity to. Think differently when anthropologists themselves are starting to become aware of the really dark colonial legacies um, of the field. Biologists who want to see themselves as like medical anthropologists just take that whole apparatus right on board. So, in a way, um, I talk about. The sense that they are also salvaging um, not only blood, but older ideas about um, race um, and an empire and colonialism, I think quite unintentionally um, even, which doesn't make it better. Um, But you see this way in which as one discipline um, shakes off um, or tries to free itself from Um, uh, a kind of mode of thinking that isn't serving its best purposes, um, that actually becomes an opportunity for a different discipline. And that is, to my mind, a really fascinating way um, that we see a persistence and a preservation of ideas that we really want to imagine could die.
1: I then asked Raiden to talk about one of the central actors toward the end of her story, a ship called the Alpha Helix. This also led her into a discussion of the ethical issues she grapples with in the book.
0: We have yet to fully exhaust um, the potential of of that um, of that vessel. But the Alpha Helix is was basically um, uh, a boat, a floating meant to be a floating laboratory. Um, this was a moment when the biologists were trying to demonstrate that they too had need of big um, expensive instruments. It wasn't just the physicists who needed it. Um, And and, um, the NSF sponsors it, but it's coordinated by Scripps um, in La Jolla. And um, they write in their publication, in their publicity materials, that this is going to be an instrument for big biology. Um, and the goal is to get biologists out of the lab and into the field to get them um, working together in teams. Um, it's really this brilliant kind of for the historian microcosm of the values of post-war science funding of what kinds of science did they want to see happening and how could the ship um, become a kind of laboratory for the creation of new scientific forms of work um, as well as um, you know doing analyses in the field Um, and lots and lots of scientists travel on different voyages on the alpha helix it's it's really, my understanding is that it was a really kind of lovely um, way to travel. Um, It had a music room, it had paintings hanging, it, you know, had lots of, different spaces to hang out for the crew. It wasn't um, a massive sort of cruise ship, but it wasn't a tiny dinky. Um, There was an official crew that navigated and then teams of scientists could stay on board. Um, The idea being that um, they could reach places that they might not normally be able to reach and they could really extend um, their networks um, and be able to extend also perhaps the reach of 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 American empire, um, as well. Um, so there were only three voyages that actually involved research on human communities. And I write about those three in the chapter. Um, and because it was this big instrument, there's a particular kind of, um, archival trail that I was able to, to trace. I mean, there are so many voyages, so many, um, field trips that happen without the use of the ship, but the ship really crystallized the practices, um, really crystallized, um, what it was that people thought they were doing because they had to justify it in order to get use of the ship. Now, um, it turns out, and I've talked to a number of scientists who travel me, not just for these voyages, but for others, that very little science per se, or lab work happened on the ship. Its real value was as a floating freezer. Um, It enabled people to keep materials uh, cold, across the cold chain to get them from one point to um, another, back to the centers of calculation where they would be archived and studied. Um, The ship accelerated the pace of research. Um, It enabled scientists to, um, you know, hit... Several islands, perhaps island communities, um, in a relatively short period of time. Whereas in the past, it would have been a much more complicated undertaking, and it also gave them the kind of uh, diplomatic authority of the United States. Because once you start traveling along, um, you know, ports and and shipping, um, there's a whole different set of negotiations that need to happen, or that that do happen. Um, now. What I found particularly interesting um, was Carlton Gadjasek's voyage on the Alpha Helix because he kept meticulous diaries, he took photos, and he took film. Um, And that was a really powerful opportunity to get some insight into what were the people whose blood were being collected making of this enterprise. This was a real challenge of this project for me. Um, I had to make some difficult choices about whose voices I was going to be able to access. Um, and these, these materials connected to the alpha helix helped me to get a better perspective on what those encounters looked like. Um, what, um, what people were seeking and what becomes very obvious and evident was that these were not communities that had never been contacted before. Um, These were communities that had long been under colonial rule, had been involved in plantation labor, um, were struggling with the encroachment of um, an introduction of new kinds of extractive enterprises like mining, um, and were aware that the scientists Could bring acute medical care, which they wanted. Um, And so there are lots of, there's lots of footage of the team not only performing their anthropometric measurements and taking blood, but caring for small children, um, doing um, sort of um, first aid exams on people. Um, And you start to see that um, this this was a much more complicated form of encounter than the scientists might have reported. Um, and you start to see um, the ways in which uh, this global scientific enterprise. Um, Presents certain possibilities shows some of the power of biomedicine in ways that communities wanted to access. Um, very rarely in the cases that I wrote wrote about were these instances where um, people had absolutely no idea what was happening to them. However, um, they they didn't anticipate they what they couldn't wrap their heads around, which no one could really wrap their heads around, was that the data that scientists, the materials that scientists were collecting about them were intended to be preserved, that they were going to be frozen. And this really hit home to me when I found an informed consent document um, that Jim Neal had to fill out before he went to South America to work with um, members of the Chavante. Um, He had to list what were the risks of the research he was doing. And the risks were limited in his mind to the fact that the puncture to take blood and puncturing the skin could in very rare cases lead to um, a complication. And that was the only risk. There was no sense that um, the blood could be used decades later for um, to answer questions that the communities themselves were not interested in having answered. Um, There was no indication that this was something that should be a source of concern, even as it was very clear in the minds of scientists that this was precisely what was so valuable um, about about the blood. Um, So the alpha helix not only shows, provides me a way to see what this collection process with the freezers and with the values and the politics look like in practice, It's one of the rare opportunities I had um, in the archival record to get some insight into how these ethical questions and ethical questions that apply to all of us today, anyone who is encountering biomedicine are really getting negotiated and worked out in this early period. And there's a really powerful moment um, when Gadjasek is aboard the Alpha Helix, where they're collecting blood and they're partitioning it out, and they decide they don't need the hemoglobins, so they just dump it overboard. And the hemoglobin vials wash up back on the shore, right where he's just been. And the members of the communities are like, what are you doing? You're just like taking our blood and throwing it away. Like, you know, we don't understand this is really upsetting. And Gadjasek is really upset about it um, because he's embarrassed by it. And it's those kinds of moments of embarrassment or discomfort or friction that I found the most uh, productive. And they certainly abound um, in the case of the alpha helix um, in revealing what kinds of challenges are involved in implementing an entirely new kind of regime of knowledge production, especially one um, that involves cross cultural encounter um, and how little accountability there was. Um, scientists were really largely operating with their own sense of virtue um, and. I don't think many of them ever imagined that they would have to, or be in a position to defend or explain their choices. Not least of all, because in their mind, these communities were already um, on their way towards what they would call extinction. Um, So the fact that members of these communities the communities that haven't um, disappeared and in many cases are um, becoming influential and powerful has been something that contemporary biomedicine is reckoning with. Um, what is it? What do these forms of accountability mean? Um, you know, what are the limits of informed consent? Is there, is there really such a thing as informed consent? Is this a doctrine that is best suited to mitigating harm um, in these biomedical encounters? And here, I think there's a lot to be learned from Indigenous communities, not necessarily from their bodies, but from the ways in which they um, are able to articulate other ways of imagining what science can look like and what its goals can be. And so um, I hope that while I was not in a position to um, reconstruct the experiences of of, dozens and dozens of different indigenous communities around the world, that people who are interested in these issues might find this book and might be able to use it to push these analyses further.
1: Raiden's work is definitely worthy of multiple audiences, and the two new projects she described to me sound like they might even lead to broader ones, though the main subject of the first will probably be a tough act to beat.
0: Sure. So I actually have two projects that I'm working on now, and they kind of come out of this one in different ways. Um, so one that I've been working on quite a bit um, for the last year or so um, has to do with this question of... of Biomedical futures. Um, So after spending all this time looking at the way that scientists were trying to make a claim for what the future was going to be and going to need um, I got really interested in um, Science fiction um, and the ways in which similar kinds of claims get made there Um, in particular I Become really obsessed with um, Michael Crichton um, uh, Creative mass-market fiction for all kinds of reasons not least of all it turns out he um, started out as a biological anthropologist at Harvard, hanging out with the um, scientists who I write about. Um, And I was really interested in the ways in which his work kind of blurs this sense of fact and fiction and creates biomedical futures that are particularly attentive to fear. Um, So questions about anxiety and risk, um, how we come to fear the future. What are the fears that um, are associated with emerging science and technology? And so I've been um, working on a book there where Crichton um, is one kind of delegate for the future of science and medicine, but I'm interested in what other kinds of um, subjectivities we might produce. And I'm interested in thinking about science fiction, not just as a set of um, cultural texts, But as objects, as things that circulate between um, the sort of mass market and the lab, um, I'm interested, I guess, in how science fiction colonizes the future. Um, So there I'm reconstituting my interest in colonialism, science, ethics, um, and and trying to write something about science fiction. The other project um, also comes out of this effort this book on freezing life, um, I was thinking a lot in this book about people's efforts to um, keep life going, about immortality. Um, And I started to realize that historians of biology or modern biology haven't done that much work yet on the question of death. Um, And so I'm working also on a project of trying to think about um, finitude and how um, life scientists have thought about decay, degeneration, breakdown um, in the ways they make knowledge. And I'm also interested in looking alongside that at how ideas about death, decay, and breakdown are um, programmed into our information architecture. So um, I'm, I've sort of got my hands full across those domains, but I'm really excited to um, keep pushing on these questions and really try to make sense of what's scary about being alive um, and ha- the ways in which we contort ourselves uh, to not face those fears, even as we claim to be doing the real work um, of getting at the mysteries of life. So stay tuned.
1: Thanks for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society on the New Books Network.